John chapter 17, we had occasion to look at this passage many years ago, so we went through the Gospel of John and mentioned at that time that while we consider what we read in the Beatitudes to be the Lord's Prayer, well, that, that is actually the disciples' prayer, this is the Lord's Prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. This evening we're going to be looking at it and I'm going to begin by reading verses 4 through 9. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 4. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were. And thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. For the words which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me for they are thine. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes to understand your word, to understand your purpose from all eternity, to understand your sovereign wisdom and your omnipotence to bring about that which you have purposed. And Father, I also ask that we might see in this the finished work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to do your will and glorified you on the earth, having accomplished that which you sent him to do. We pray that you would instruct us and at the same time that you would nourish us, build us up in faith, grant us the grace to know that we are indeed yours, that we were yours from all eternity and you have given us to Jesus Christ, and no power in the universe can pluck us from his hand. All glory and honor be to him alone, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, we have been talking about the doctrine of atonement. And uh, we had occasion during the Sunday school class to look at the, the five points of Calvinism, the tulip. And I've had occasion over the years, of course, to, to discuss the L in tulip, popularly known as limited atonement. And it's convenient for the use of the acronym tulip, which is appropriate since the Synod of Dort was in Holland, that we have tulip as our, uh, as our acronym. Uh, I think Mark recently mentioned that the acronym or the flower of the Arminian, uh, the true Arminian is the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me. He loves me not. But the L in tulip is, I think, unfortunate. And I, I think in our own understanding, we should uh, substitute it with a D, which gives us two dip, but that doesn't really help us remember it. Definite atonement is what it is that the Reformed doctrine of Christ's work teaches. As for limited atonement, everybody's atonement is limited. The Arminian has an atonement that is limited in effect. 
whereas the Calvinist has an atonement that is limited in extent. But every view of the atonement and the work of Christ's shed blood is limited in some way. The question is, in what way does the Bible teach it to be limited? Is it limited in effect? In other words, it is adequate for all, as the Arminian teaches, but it is effective only for those who believe. In other words, it's not 100% effective because it does not attain the salvation of all for whom it is shed. Or is the atoning blood of Jesus Christ limited in extent, which is the Reformed doctrine? It is effective for all for whom intended. The Arminian teaches that the blood of Christ was shed for each and every one, but will only bring about the salvation of those who believe. The Reformed teaches that the blood of Jesus Christ will bring about sal salvation for everyone for whom it is shed. Now when we come to these words of our Lord in the high priestly prayer of John 17, he says, I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And so our focus this evening is to look again a little bit more detail at what it is God the Father purposed and whether or not Jesus the Son accomplished. Now I think we, we see in this verse that Jesus was not merely talking about what he already had done in, in walking this earth and teaching the truth about God in submitting himself to the righteous requirements of the law. But he also speaks ahead about what he was about to do in obedience to the Father's commandment and to the will of God. Earlier in John we read Jesus saying that it was for the purpose of death that Jesus came into the world. The death of Christ on the cross was encompassed in the purpose of the Father in sending him. So when Jesus says here, I have accomplished all the work which thou hast given me to do, he's speaking both of what he had done and what he was about to do. And really the, the final, uh, as, as the British say, the, the full stop of Jesus' words here will come on the cross when he says, it is finished. I've accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. The Calvinistic doctrine of definite atonement is rather simple. I think there's a, a certain advantage to that. Jesus Christ accomplished fully all that which the Father sent him to do. I think that's a, that's a simple statement. I think it's incredibly biblical. And any other statement is actually repugnant to a proper view of God and of the Son, Jesus Christ. He accomplished fully all that which the Father sent him to do. I mentioned that we are loosely following John Owen in his Death of Death, in the Death of Christ, and he begins his book in Book 1, Chapter 2, in talking about this concept of, of means to an end. 
He says, the end of anything is that which the agent intendeth to accomplish. That's a simple definition. Whatever you plan to do, that is the end to which you are working. Man purposes and plans, but he is not always able to accomplish. And we experience that probably every day of our lives. When we set out to do a certain thing, we have our list of to-dos, or maybe what we are purposing to do is not possible within a day. And so we, we set out plans along the calendar of time to reach a goal. But we know that there are so many intangibles. In fact, we don't know all the intangibles that are there until they come to light and they thwart us in our plan. But we believe that God, based on His own revelation of Himself in Scripture, and upon the meaning of, of the name God, we believe that He accomplishes all His good pleasure, and that all, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. It, it is hard for me to believe that any man could consider God incapable of accomplishing His purpose and still worship Him as God. The open theist who claims that God does not know the future but boldly goes forth as man does, ignorant of what the future may bring. And even the Arminian who believes that God sent His Son out of love for God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son but he's not going to get everybody. In fact, there are millions and tens of millions and billions who will not be redeemed by the blood shed at Golgotha. That God will be thwarted in his purpose by the sovereign will of man in refusing to believe. That is a view of God that is close to blasphemy. The means, John Owen speaks, are the instruments whereby an end is attained. And most of you, I'm sure, have heard the phrase, the ends justify the means. Machiavelli made that statement famous. The attitude that if the, if the end is worthy, then any means that attain that end are themselves justified. Now, we're not going to be talking about politics where that Machiavellian end justifying the mean is prevalent, but I will say that it's a very powerful philosophy in modern evangelism. The end is worthy, and that is the salvation of the lost, the bringing of lost souls to Jesus Christ and to eternal life. And because the end is worthy, Modern evangelism, really, since the days of Charles Finney, has basically adopted whatever means seem to lead to that end. And I say seem, because the salvation of a soul is something that is not necessarily visible to us. God knows those who are His. And not all that have walked down the aisle or raised their hand or signed a card or even been baptized are actually regenerate. And a faulty gospel, as I've said in these evening services, a faulty gospel will lead to faulty salvation. A false gospel will lead to false salvation. 
will lead to false security. When we speak of God, however, when the end is determined by God and His counsel alone, then we believe that the means that He employs will be adequate to accomplish those ends. And they will themselves be holy and good. That God will not use evil to attain good, but rather that all of His means will be themselves as good as the end that He wishes to accomplish. Again, Owen says, That which the agent doth, or whereto he applieth himself, for the compassing his proposed end is called the means. In other words, and in more modern English, God will do what he needs to do to accomplish his purpose. And we believe that he has revealed to us in Scripture that which he intends to do as well as that which he purposes. And the ends and the means of salvation are very simple, simply the redemption of a people for God's own name from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That God is building a kingdom of righteousness and He is redeeming for Himself a people, citizens of that kingdom. And the means that He employs to that end are the sending of His eternal Son to the earth and to the cross as man, the last Adam. The death of Christ was the means to the salvation of sinners. But the whole world consists of sinners. And so the debate between the Arminian and the Calvinist with the semi-Pelagian Roman Catholic kind of forming a bit of a triangle of debate has to do with those means employed by God. Were those means, the sending of Jesus Christ to the cross and the shed blood, were they adequate? Or were they inadequate? Or were they more than adequate? Now those, those three phrases, adequate, inadequate, or superfluous, more than adequate, characterize the three main views within professing Christianity concerning the atonement. For example, Rome teaches inadequacy. It's the blood of Christ plus the sacraments of the church and the intercession of the saints. You see, the blood of Christ, to use a modern economic metaphor, the blood of Christ capitalized the treasury of merit. Jesus Christ made the initial deposit, which is called the capitalization of a bank, for example. And that treasury of merit is then added to. And what is remarkable about the teaching of the Church of Rome is that it, it's not the work of Christ that is superfluous or more than adequate, but rather of the saints who they claim do more than they need to do to save themselves. And that extra goes into the treasury of merit to benefit those of us who do less, the non-saints in the church. 
To think that a rebel against the holy God could do more than required of him for salvation is again blasphemous. So Rome teaches, not, not directly, don't, don't get me wrong, they don't teach directly and explicitly that the blood of Christ is inadequate, but the effect of their teaching is just that. It is inadequate because more is needed. Arminians teach, however, that the blood of Christ is more than adequate. It is superfluous. It was shed for many who will never be saved because they will not believe. So there is this excess of salvation floating out there, bought by the blood of Christ on Calvary, but it will not purchase anyone. It's a surplus. The Reformed view is that the means employed by God were adequate and fully adequate, but not more than adequate to attain the ends that God purposed. That is definite atonement. That Christ shed his blood not promiscuously, but definitely. He didn't send, to use the, the, the grammar of, of definiteness, he didn't shed his blood for a sinner, but for the sinner. Not for sheep, but for his sheep. That is the, the doctrine that we teach in Reformed theology, but is it the doctrine that the Bible teaches? There's a common modern Reformed view that I want to address tonight because I'm sure most of you have heard it. It is, in fact, an accommodation of modern Reformed theologians who've kind of lost their edge when compared to more traditional Calvinist teaching. And that phrase is that the blood of Christ is sufficient for all, but efficient only for the elect. Have you ever heard that? The blood of Christ is sufficient for all, but efficient only for the elect. Now, if one is referring to the infinite value of Christ's blood, well, then there's no objection. His blood is infinitely worthy. And had it been the purpose of God to save every single sinner in the human race, he would not have needed to do any more than he did in the shedding of Jesus' blood. And so, in that sense, we might say that the blood of Christ was sufficient to save all, because it would indeed be unbiblical and blasphemous to think that God would have to do more in order to save more. But nonetheless, it's a very misleading statement. It's a compromise. It's not something I believe that you'll find, and I haven't read everything that, that, that Calvin um, and his immediate disciples wrote with regard to the atonement. But in the very tenor of their writings, and certainly in the writing of John Owen, you will not find such a statement. You will not find such a, an acquiescence and, a, and an attempt to sound more palatable to the Arminian, but rather Reformed theologian in its traditional, or theology in its traditional form, maintains that God's effort is always fully adequate to accomplish his end, 
But there is no leftover effort. There is no surplus of energy or work. There is no extra blood or extra salvation floating about. Atoning blood, but no one atoned. It's not a matter of of flying over and, and just releasing money from an airplane, much of which floats around and falls in the swamp and in the water and in the deep woods and no one benefits from it. That's, that's not how we view the salvation that is brought to us through Jesus Christ. When he was on the cross, he was not shedding his blood indiscriminately. He was not shedding his blood for men and for women and for children who would ultimately not benefit from that blood. John Owen writes, The end which God effected by the death of Christ was the satisfaction of His, God's, justice. Now that's one aspect. There are many aspects of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, but one of them is the satisfaction. And we'll be looking at that, Lord willing, in a week or two when we return after our Thanksgiving dinner. The satisfaction of divine justice. Now I want you to think about Was the Father pleased with what the Son did? Absolutely. And was the Father satisfied with what the Son did? Yes. So, if God's justice is satisfied, then it is satisfied for all whom Christ's blood was shed. They are the ones who stand at the bar of divine justice, guilty because of their sin. And so if Christ's blood is satisfaction for all, then for what will any man be judged and condemned? Well, the Arminian quickly says, for unbelief. For his unbelief, the one sin that prevents the blood of Jesus Christ from working on his behalf is his own unbelief, which is remarkable because it's really the only sin that keeps us out of God's grace to begin with. And we'll be talking at length, Lord willing, next time we gather about the sin of unbelief. But before we get to that, let's just look at the ends and the means. The thought of excess Satisfaction is just, it just isn't what we read in Scripture. It isn't what we read in this passage. I have accomplished the work that thou hast given me to do. No indication. Father, I've done more than what you sent me to do. In fact, I've done so much more than you've sent me to do that much of what I have done won't accomplish the salvation of a sinner and will have been essentially wasted. John Owen, in a lengthy passage, writes, well, everything John Owen writes is a lengthy passage. (laughs) That's redundant. He says, But the promises of God made unto Christ in their agreement, and therefore, consequently, Christ's own aim and intention may be seen in nothing more manifestly than in the request that our Savior makes 
upon the accomplishment of that work about which he was sent, which certainly was neither for more nor less than God had engaged himself to Christ. And then Owen quotes what we just read, I have, saith he, glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Neither more nor less, but exactly what the Father willed. Now I believe Owen represents very accurately the Reformed doctrine of definite atonement. Jesus Christ came, sent by the Father to do the Father's will. That before the world was ever founded in the counsel of the eternal God, the Father and the Son purposed to redeem a people unto God. And for that purpose Jesus was sent, and to that purpose Jesus lived and died, fully accomplishing all that the Father sent him to do. Neither more nor less. And so on the cross, when Jesus says, it is finished, he is announcing the accomplishment of that eternal plan, that eternal purpose, with which, of course, he fully agreed. And in full counsel of the Godhead, the Son accomplished the Father's will. Jesus Christ, we are told in Scripture, came to seek and save that which was lost. The Arminian would say that the entire human race comprises that category, that which was lost. But the scriptures teach that he came to save those whom the Father had given him. He says in this passage, thine they were, they belonged to you, and you gave them to me. And Paul assures us in Romans 8, that nothing, as Jesus has said even in the Gospels, nothing will snatch those sheep from his hand. That is definite atonement. That was the end for which the Father sent the Son, and this was the work that the Son finished on earth. Do we have any biblical warrant to say that Jesus accomplished the Father's will even for those who will never benefit from his work? This is what the Arminian maintains, that in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus accomplished the will of the Father for many who will never benefit. That's the, that's the issue that I keep coming back to over the years, thinking about, you know, well, it, it would be nice to believe that God so loved each and every individual person in the world that for them he sent his son to die. But I always come back to thinking, he didn't get what he paid for. We're told in the gospel according to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, that the servant would see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Be satisfied. The Arminian does not present to me a satisfied Savior. For there are so many for whom he shed his blood who will not be saved. But what does Jesus say? 
He says in this passage, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me out of the world. Well, frankly, folks, if Jesus isn't asking on behalf of everyone, I would maintain he didn't die on behalf of everyone either. Not for the world, but for those whom God has given him out of the world. The Arminian says, well, he's simply talking about the special election of the apostles. The Arminian doctrine of election is that God does not elect each and every one who will be saved, but rather he elects certain people for certain duties and offices, for certain functions within his overall plan. And so they'll say, well, yes, he gave Jesus the apostles. And in fact, that's what Jesus just said. He's speaking on behalf of those who heard him teach, who believed his message. But then listen to what he says a little bit later on in verse 20. He says, because perhaps the Holy Spirit anticipates what the Arminian will eventually say, oh, oh this is just for the apostles. So Jesus says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We're part. Those of us who have entrusted their lives because of the grace of God in the Son of God are included in this prayer. Yes, Jesus was praying for those who sat around him at the table. But then he makes sure that we do not misunderstand him. That we do not think he was merely praying for those eleven, but rather for all those who would believe in him through their word. The apostles and us. We were on the mind and in the heart of Jesus at the Last Supper. We were those whom he prayed, for whom he prayed, Father, sanctify them in the truth. We were those for whom he prayed that the love of the Godhead would encompass us, that they, the Godhead would be in us and we would be in the Godhead and all would be one. This is what Jesus prayed to the Father. And he has already informed us that whatever he asks of the Father, the Father will give him. And this is a definite group of people. He says, not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me out of the world. And so the logic of the doctrine of definite atonement is that if Jesus in the upper room on the night in which he was betrayed prayed only for a definite group of sheep, then for that group he went forth to Golgotha and died. And for them alone. Let us pray. Father, we wish to see a multitude of people saved. Certainly, Father, we desire to see your grace poured out on our own families, those whom we love, those who are closest to us. 
But I pray, Father, that in our understanding of what you have done, we would never diminish your glory. We would never subtract from the omnipotence and the sovereignty of your will. And that we would rather desire that you be glorified. And as Paul says, that even I should be accursed. Father, we do pray that you would fill your churches. We know that you will call those whom you have elected and selected from before the foundation of the world. And we do desire to see that. We desire to see our church filled. We know, Father, that you are still saving. For Jesus Christ has not yet returned. And we ask that the gospel might be preached from this pulpit and from all of the pulpits in Greenville and in the United States and around the world that your glory in salvation through Jesus Christ might be made manifest once again as it has in the past. For your glory and for the lifting up of the name of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Please rise this evening for the benediction from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.